like to just begin this morning by welcoming those of you who've joined the retreat in the last few days, both those of you coming for the second half of the solitary month, and also those of you coming in on retreat for the, uh, the next five days, the coordinators, as uh, I guess probably has been, you've been informed, the rest of you. Uh, it's always lovely this particular time when the the people who live and work and serve here at Gaia House actually also join in this retreat for five or so days. And this, this precious opportunity to practice. This morning I'd like to reflect upon some of the, the qualities and the beautiful qualities that this practice is in the service of developing. And uh, listed or described in the tradition as the parami, the perfections of the human heart and mind, those qualities which can be the beautiful qualities of the human heart and mind that can be developed and brought to fruition. And we could perhaps understand this as the, the cultivation of the garden of our heart, the, uh, the bringing forth from from what we are as human beings, its fullest potential. That which is beautiful and lovely. And it's, uh, I think, good to come back and remember such things. There's a, <clears throat> there's a saying you may have encountered, I'll uh, adapt it slightly for the context, that goes, when you're up to your, um, shall we say, rear end and alligators, it's hard to remember that your original intention was to drain the swamp. And I think in, uh, in a meditation retreat, in the middle or perhaps sometimes at the beginning, we can uh, kind of benefit from remembering what our original intention was, from coming back to our, our aspiration. What it is that moves us to be here. And... Uh, for me, just coming into the hall and uh, having the opportunity to connect with what's happening here as I do, it seems a, a real privilege. Also the opportunity for me to just take a moment to express my appreciation and gratitude to the Buddha, to offer that uh, form of, of appreciation and respect, as I like to do before speaking and uh, Something about touch that touches me in remembering the, the humanness and the incredibleness of the, the Buddha's life. To come into what we're doing here with a, a vision that is vast for the awakening of one's heart and mind and for that awakening to be in the service of all beings. And in the story of the Buddha, as I imagine you all, or most of you, will know quite well, there's this relating of in a, a, a long time ago, we'd have to say, thousands and thousands of lifetimes ago, the Buddha, it seems, was in a situation where his practice and his life was uh, developing well, and he, he could have uh, realized awakening. And the story is told that in that time he encountered the Buddha of the day, of that particular age. 
And in seeing that the Buddha Dipankara, who he was incredibly and deeply inspired by, he made a resolution to attain Buddhahood, full awakening, just as this noble being had. In the understanding that there is a degree of liberation that we can develop in a way which we perhaps call awakening, that is profound and beautiful. And that there is also something perhaps more profound, more beautiful, in the, the full development of all of our human heart's capacities, which is not necessarily required for simply awakening. And this is, this is kind of curious, this is interesting to me. That there's this distinction or this recognition that the development of everything that is possible for us is not required for freedom. Freedom comes essentially through the development of wisdom. And, of course, beautiful, powerful, profound. But in order to really be able to serve this world, this life, and all beings to our greatest ability, there's something wider and broader that is asked of us. And this in the tradition is spoken of as the parami. These are ten qualities of the heart and mind. And something about connecting with that aspiration, that intention, that sense that our practice is not just for ourselves, but for the benefit, for the welfare of all beings, I think is really helpful, it's really supportive in, in many different ways. And so I'd like to speak this morning, as I said, with regard to these different qualities and their cultivation. I'll just name them. I may not get through all of them, in fact, in the, the time I have, so we'll see. The first quality, dana, generosity. The second, sila, non-harming. Nikama, renunciation. Virya, effort or energy. Kanti, patience. Sakya, truthfulness, honesty. Upeka, equanimity. Aditana, resolve. Panya, wisdom or discernment. And metta, loving kindness and friendliness. And we can hear a list such as this and it may seem like rather a lot to take on any one of those qualities we could imagine being a, a lifetime's endeavour to develop, to perfect. And it's not so much about having to perfect something here, even though that was what we understand the Buddha's endeavour and what he fulfilled, but the sense of setting a course, setting a trajectory for our heart, for our mind, in the service of something beautiful. And we might, and there are you know, perfectly good range of views on uh, such things as a rebirth and the, the story of the Buddha. And some will say, hmm, that doesn't sound something I can quite relate to. And others will actually feel a perhaps deep resonance with what that cycle of uh, birth after birth and the commitment and devotion to awakening for all beings might be about. 
But even if we don't really have a sense of rebirth that's meaningful in any way, just the very movement of human consciousness, the awakening of the, the human heart and mind that moves through the generations across the centuries, whether we regard that as an individual being or self in some way or not self in some way that is reborn, and I'm not going to try and unpick that particular thorny topic right now, but even if we don't have a sense of that, there can still be a sense of the way in which whatever qualities we bring into this world, in our hearts, in our lives, in our practice, is part of a, a movement, a momentum within human consciousness in its collective sense that grows, that develops. And it's very clear to me that the things that have been learned by people who came before me, including the Buddha, have enabled me to learn and grow more quickly and perhaps more fully than otherwise I could have in these realms. And so we are all part of a process of this, we could say, full awakening of the human heart, of all human beings. And so these qualities, the first is, is generosity, sense of sharing, of dana. It's something we often talk about at the end of retreats reflect on somehow after we've done all the hard work and before we go home. And yet there's something really, something really beautiful about just bringing to mind the intention and the, the possibility of sharing what we have for the welfare of others. It's, to my sense, a very natural response, a very natural impulse. And I notice, and I, I think it's very common when encountering a wild creature or a domestic farm animal, often there's a sense of wanting to just give it some food. Just that simple thing of wanting to share something with another living creature that comes out of a place of connection, that expresses that connectedness. And I remember being so deeply touched when I was first travelling in Asia many years ago with the, the, the very natural urge that poor people, I encountered peasants with very little, had to share, and to share the best of what they had with someone such as me who actually had much more than they did. And the, the amount of joy that it would give, that it would bring in those situations. And I can remember spending time at the monasteries and uh, in in England and the West equally as in Asia, and the, the sense of joy and uplift that seemed to arise quite naturally in the giving, in the sharing, in the bringing of food. And a small child full of delight as she would offer some simple, simple nourishment to one of the nuns or the monks. Or just the quiet, peaceful happiness of, an, of a grandmother who'd been knitting woolen caps for the winter, for the, or the bald or shaven heads to keep them warm. To notice how that turning towards that quality of offering, of generosity, it's just a natural uplifter of the heart. To remember that place in which we, we do wish and share and offer our practice for the welfare of all beings. That it, it, it actually lifts the heart, it brings a sense of, of warmth, of joy, and of, of energy for sustaining in the face of what at times might be a, a challenging journey.
The Buddha spoke of it also as a way of releasing negativity and anger, to give a gift to someone we're angry with. It's a particularly annoying instruction, really. Why would I want to do that if I'm angry with someone? And yet, sometimes that just that place of seeing, when we notice if our mind is caught up in some reactivity to another, to just imagine what it might be to, to offer something to that person. What might it be to just make a little offering in some way? To remember, there's always something we can give. There's always something we can offer. And that quality of uplifting the heart is, is available when needed in that way. I can remember on retreat spending time just uh, feeding little crumbs of bread to the birds. Just sometimes when it felt like a little connection, just a way to express some sense of sharing, that, that kind of thing we have in common with all beings, that we need food. And that we may be in a position to be able to offer some. It may seem like small things, but my experience is that they're, they're not. Such things can actually be very powerful. And there's many ways we can do that here. Just little offerings of... What it's like when we see some plate or cup that's been left dirty hanging around and the, the initial response might be, oh, why didn't they sort that out, you know, and I'm not going to, you know. And then actually, oh, okay, so here's someone I'm a bit irritated. I don't even know who they are, you know. It's not like I've seen the owner of the plate or the cup. But, oh, I could wash that. I could clean that. Not saying you have to go around cleaning everybody else's dishes just because I suggested it, but there could be a natural generous impulse to, oh, as an offering to whoever forgot their plate, or actually just to the general space of the house so that nobody else has to have the same kind of aversion that I had, seeing it. it can just, just little acts of generosity are available here. Or when coming towards the end of the breakfast time and noticing that although one is not the last person, there is only one banana left. What do we do in that moment? Because sometimes we can say, yeah, it's fine, I'll have the banana. It's okay. And sometimes we might say, oh, maybe I'll enjoy that banana more if I leave it for the next person. And again, those sort of bright moments of connection, of offering, of sharing, they really come out of a sense of having enough. And this is so much what acting in generosity, expressing that spirit of dana, brings to the heart a sense of enough, of contentment, in which we can rest. The second of the parami is sila, non-harming. To practice ethicality, a sense of real care for our actions and their impact on others. And again, we talk about this usually at the beginning of a retreat, and then often it doesn't get picked up again. Maybe we think about it, and then here am I doing my practice, and it's meditation. Of course, it is meditation. And yet, just again, remembering the precepts, the foundation of this practice is that intention for non-harming. The understanding that to 
to really allow our practice to rest on something stable. We must, so far as we can, rest our life in that intention. To treat others as we would wish to be treated. To not hold ourselves different, separate or apart from everyone else. And to act accordingly. To act accordingly. To really see the relationship between action and result. To look at our minds, to notice what happens when I act from a place of disregarding another. There may be moments where it happens. It's not that we need to blame ourselves or judge ourselves, but notice what it's like when we're rolling into the lunch queue, and this is often a place for many insights, and there's just that urge to take a little bit more because it looks good and I don't want to be hungry. And actually, of course, we're not going to be hungry here at Guy House. That just doesn't seem to happen very often. But the sense of just a few more of those yummy things. Have you ever noticed the urge to try and pick out a few extra of the things you like the most from the art pot? I notice it regularly. Sometimes I do it as well. But I also try and stay with that process because what I've also seen many times is that if I realise the next person didn't quite get their share because I took a little more, I don't enjoy that extra. And that sense of just, okay, noticing. Noticing our actions and their effects as we move through the day. The way our heart is flavoured, is coloured, our mind is flavoured and coloured by the qualities of the actions we're undertaking. This, this understanding of karma, of, of the way action colours the mind. When we enact impulses, when we enact certain qualities, it colours the mind. This is really at the heart of what we're doing here. To understand that without awareness, without mindfulness, without presence, and without the wisdom and discernment that comes from that, we are unable to make those choices. We don't see what's happening clearly enough to actually choose what's skillful in terms of action, in terms of response. And that is fundamentally what generates suffering. The enacting, the acting on that which leads to harm. That being awake, being present, being able to see more clearly is what allows us to not do so. So again, while we practice seeing into the, the fundamental truth of our experience, at the same time being very aware of our actions. The famous uh, line by Padmasambhava, one of the great uh, teachers of the Tibetan lineage. He once observed, he said, Though my view of emptiness is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma, to action, is as fine as a grain of flour. To see every intentional action we take as planting a seed. And if that seed is wholesome, it will support us. And if that seed is born of 
greed or aversion, negativity or disregard for others, it will cause harm to ourselves as much as others. And a kind of a sober quality about that seems of just, oh, yeah. Do we really want to notice what goes on? And at the same time also celebrate, to honour, to acknowledge the goodness of those moments and times and intentions where we do align ourselves with non-harming. The very peacefulness of being on retreat, in fact, has a profound expression of that, taking ourselves out of the world of so much more external activity that inevitably has an impact. And this is also an expression of the third parami, renunciation, nikamma, the process of letting go. It's something that when we speak about it in these terms, renunciation, it kind of often doesn't sound that attractive. It's a bit like, hmm, sort of deprivation is often the association we have with that in our world and our culture. It runs, it seems, 180 degrees in opposition to what we're being encouraged to do within the consumerist, materialist mindset and culture that uh, is so predominant. And yet this quality of renunciation, of letting go, this is the basis of contentment, of inner peace. It comes from this capacity to release, to not follow, to not be caught by and enacting the habitual conditional responses of aversion and of desire of craving and resistance. And so we have many, again, opportunities here to see where our action is coming from those movements. To look and see, and classical places are with regard to rest, with regard to food, with regard to comfort. Now the Buddha once said that this path will not be easy for those who are attached to sleep, to food, to uh, sort of conversation. So we've already let go in a big way of conversation. There's a, there's a renunciation there, a sort of a, a setting something aside. Understanding renunciation doesn't mean rejecting what we put aside, but putting something less important down in order to, something import, in order to support something more important. So with food, for instance, it might be perfectly fine to, you know, as I sometimes am find, I find the urge to, to, to take the celery out of the salad because I don't like it. Now, there's no real ethical issue with that. No one's getting hurt or otherwise by me eating the celery or not eating the celery. But I don't like it. And yet I know it's not harmful. So as a practice, sometimes it's really interesting to so let me eat this unpleasant thing. Just to, just to explore what that's like. To see, oh, okay, I can let go of the urge to avoid this experience, knowing it's not harmful to me, though deeply unpleasant. I have no idea how people like that stuff. But that's just how it is for me. And there's a sense when we can do, when we can find the space for that. Or to choose sometimes to be a little less comfortable. You know, you've probably all figured out by now which is the chair you find the most sweet to sit in, where you like to sit, 
in the dining room. I even know exactly which pieces of cutlery in that collection of hundreds I prefer. I've probably had almost all of them in my hands over the you know, the decades of, of that, and I know which ones I like, and sometimes I find myself wanting to dig in there and find the one I like. And of course that's a bit of a problem for whoever's behind me in the queue, because it's going to take a while, and someone else might already have it. So there's again, there's just those little moments where the whole sense of self arises and configures with the, the my preference, and it's no real harm, there's no real issue in it, and yet again there's a freedom that comes and an ease that comes with just, oh, I'll just take this. Now, you might laugh at the ones I'm bringing up because they might not be where you get challenged or struggle. You know, bits of salary or the, the fork that has the pleasurable sensations between my fingers when I hold it, as opposed to the one that feels really horrible and tinny and, ah, uh, you know. But those things, we all have our own versions of them or the cup we like. or the And just see, what is it this time? Just to go in and take the first one that's there. And just notice, I like it, I don't like it. Sure, that might arise. But what is that? to not have to give so much authority to that particular construction of preference. And so renunciation, not so much about harming, but about starting to free ourselves from the pull of preference, the way that it can, in a way that seems quite innocent and harmless, actually start to have an incredible amount of control. There's a line in The Prophet where Khalil Gibran speaks about comfort. He says, comfort enters your home as a guest and ends up becoming the master. And it's really, a, I think, a really useful reflection. That way in which, it's sure, it's fine to have comfort, to be at ease. I had the, a moment of this myself, having not remembered to bring my shawl. Um, and my feet easily get cold uh, for various reasons. And then going into the back room and there's no shawls, not a single one in there. I couldn't believe it. I imagine they must have taken them out to wash them or something. But anyway, there's just that moment of, okay, you're going to have cold feet sitting there. All right. And then fortunately there was a spare shawl just here, which I was uh, fortunate to be able to borrow. But just those moments can be very powerful. Just to see, oh, can I be okay with this? There's an ease in simplicity. And making do without quite as much. One Tibetan Lama, he, he spoke of it in terms of this renunciation is to accept what comes into your life and let go of what leaves it. Just imagine what one's life would be like if we could live that. To accept what comes in and let go of what leaves. Just that. Not an easy practice to undertake, but to, to see it, to reflect on it in terms of what are we feeding in our lives? What do we want to feed? Any and every time we act on the urge arising from greed, from craving, from aversion or resistance, effectively we reinforce, we strengthen and we deepen that particular pattern and the strength that that particular tendency has within our mind. So even if it seems harmless in terms of the outer situation and impact, there is an effect on the inner, inevitably. 
And every time we say, actually, no, I can just uh, take what's offered here. I don't need to seek for a slightly better deal in this context. We can keep it simple in those terms. That a quality of contentment, a quality of ease, and ultimately a quality of freedom is shown in that, in the letting go of the urge to move towards that which we prefer, we find a freedom in what is, a natural freedom of the heart. As Ajahn Chah said of this letting go, he said, let go a little and you will know a little peace. Let go a lot and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace and natural freedom. So this, this process of, of, of renunciation, of, of choosing to not act on the impulse, goes really to the heart of our practice. To know the freedom of being no longer driven by or bound to have to enact the urges that arise without suppressing them, without judging them. But to really know the, the deeper contentment that comes in that sense of freedom from being driven from being bound by, compelled by, coerced by the patterns and habits of the mind and heart. And of course this isn't easy. We know this. So what we're also called to engage with the conscious cultivation, the, the next of the paramis, effort, virya, or energy, sometimes more usefully described as. The, the, the primary effort or engagement is to be awake, to be present, to bring forth from our heart and our mind that which is beneficial and wholesome, and to let go of the habits, the compulsive or compelling patterns and conditionings that we have, to not act them out so far as we can, to be interested to see them and let them go. And the, the, the Buddha spoke of four great efforts and the first effort is to give rise to the wholesome which has not arisen. So if we notice we're practicing and we're just a little bit sort of casual, we might notice that and realize, oh, actually, this just needs a little bit more focus. Okay. Or we might notice that sometimes there's some sense of sort of pushing too hard. And, and we realize, oh, there, there needs to be some quality of relaxation and just, okay, can I relax? These very simple things where we're orienting towards what we see as wholesome, to give rise to the wholesome which has not arisen. And the second is to sustain the wholesome which has arisen. So we might notice a degree of calm. And it's like, okay, rather than getting excited, great, it's calm, I've finally got calm. It's like, okay, calm, let's, be, let's see what supports that. Let's see how that steadies and deepens. And the next of the great efforts is to, to not give rise to the unwholesome, to not feed or support the things that give rise to negativity or to craving, being particularly aware in this context of how we place our attention. 
Because the way we place our attention, when we, give, when we focus on that which gives rise to craving, when we focus on the pleasant, craving tends to arise. When we focus on the unpleasant, aversion tends to arise. Seeing these conditioned processes, we have the opportunity to place our attention in a different way. So that which is pleasant, we can pay attention to the fact of its changing nature. And we see craving is less likely or less strongly arising when, when we attend to the, that nature of the experience that's pleasant as being a changing experience. Craving starts to settle or drop. And the fourth of the great efforts is to, to let go of those unhealthy, unwholesome patterns that have arisen. So it's seeing what actually allows us to extract ourselves from the patterning, from the reaction. And these, these, four, these four great efforts, I think, are really interesting to contemplate as a, um, in a way, a reframing of what, from a self, from an um, unconscious and habitual self-oriented perspective, self-centered sort of reactivity, what we're mostly trying to do is to get, to give rise to the pleasant and to maintain the pleasant, to not give rise to the unpleasant or to get rid of the unpleasant. And so the shift is putting into the place of what we've called pleasant or unpleasant, the wholesome and the unwholesome. Understanding it's not about what it feels like so much, it's about what's its effect in the heart and the mind. What's its effect in the world? And that's the basis on which we can discern and assess that capacity, that quality of wholesomeness. And the effort that's engaged in here, it's kind of, I think, like gardening. We need to really do quite a lot. This is not, a, as someone said coming into the interview um, a few days ago, it's like, oh, yeah, I really have a sense of, you've, this is really requires a lot of effort. Well, the, 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 you know, the old teachers always spoke about, wow, you've got to really work hard. And it's true. It's true. And yet, with that, understanding that the fundamental underlying process is something organic, is something natural. That our work is to, to extract ourselves from the habitual patterns. And then what grows out of that, it's like with a garden, cultivating a garden. One can soften the soil, one can bring moisture, one can pull out the weeds, but the seeds grow of their own nature. The seeds of our heart the profound potential for wisdom, for compassion, for freedom, for peace. These qualities grow naturally in the heart. We can't force them. And so, together with this quality of effort, of really a wholehearted engagement, the next quality, the next parami is patience. The sense of not rushing, kanti. I remember hearing from a... Uh, a teacher who'd been a monastic for a while that, that the, um, I don't know where this comes from exactly, but that the first rule of the training was patience. Before there were 227 rules for the monks, the first rule was patience. Just to, to bear with 
the experience with what's here to begin again and again and again. Now how many times we can come back to that remembering and find it useful? Seeing it as this, this, this counterbalance to effort, to take a long view, as I, I spoke before, that sense of human development. Whether we have some sense of patience that, sure, there's a way in which it could also lead to complacency. We might have the concern, well, just a moment, what about urgency? And in a way, urgency is what, what supports that quality of effort, the sense of knowing, yeah, there's only one moment we have, it's now, it's this. This is the place for our practice. And at the same time, at the same time, actually there is space, there is time. And whether we have the sense of our own journey over lifetimes, or whether we are absolutely sure that it's just this lifetime, and from where I'm sitting, the truth is, I don't know. But even, whichever way I hold that, even if it's just this lifetime, not some ongoing flow of lives, that nonetheless embedded within the whole movement of humanity, and in fact the whole movement of life, understanding ourselves is not separate from that. To see also that whatever we're doing here is a contribution to something larger, which has a greater trajectory, a much vaster movement than our particular personal aspect of it, or expression of it. And seeing it in that sense, in that movement of we could say the development of consciousness, whether this consciousness or small t this, mine we could say, not really mine, but mine, or this with the capital T, the, 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 the whole vast movement of life. Seeing in that sense, oh, there's a patience, there's a sort of, okay, yeah, just to do absolutely all of what is possible here and now, and yet to let that be enough too. There's a, there's a lovely story um, of a very experienced meditator of 20 years dedicated practice who had an opportunity for a brief um, interview with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And he was very uh, happy to have this opportunity because there were many things he wished to discuss. And the story is told, and I think rather beautifully, how he, he spoke about all the, the different challenges and struggles in his practice. And, you know, and kind of, I imagine expecting the Dalai Lama would give him some advice and tell him how to fix them or sort of work with them. And His Holiness, apparently he, he looked at him, he smiled very kindly, he said, yes, yes, I hear it's really difficult, yeah. You know, it's like that in the early years of practice. And for me there's something just beautiful in this, oh, if the first 20 years are the early years, you know, I can relax. It doesn't mean we abandon the the intensity or the commitment, but we just relax around the measuring or the evaluating or the progressing ideas that easily arise. Taking a long view and just breathing with that, while at the same time being fully engaged. So patience, can't they? The next to the parami is truthfulness, honesty, sakya, quality of uh, openness and forthrightness. Honesty is one of the profound and powerful qualities that provides safety and trust. 
in an environment. So truthfulness and honesty very much go together. Again, very much part of the environment here. Sense of trust, of openness, of honesty, of truthfulness. So much of what we feel threatened by involves some form of concealment. Things that might harm us, we imagine might be concealed when we have a sense of really allowing ourselves to see what's here, to be open, to express, not necessarily out loud because we're in silence, but to really see in ourselves, okay, what's here? What's really here? To make the inner condition a safe space, just as this outer environment of the retreat here at Guy House is a safe place. Of course, what we see when we look inside isn't always good news. There's that old saying, you know, why is self-knowledge always such bad news? Of course, it's not really, is it? To see our own limitations is the beginning of being able to free ourselves from them, to transform them, to be able to admit them, to be honest with ourselves, really important. But at the same time, equally important to be able to recognize and honor our good qualities, our wholesome actions and development. And to see within the realm of truthfulness what is skillful, what is useful. And again, these are things we might think of more in our day-to-day -day life where we're more engaged in conversation. But the, the key teaching that the Buddha gave, as I see around truthfulness, apart from the fact that it's always helpful and that the, the Buddha was spoken of as in all the years of his growing of his development the, the many lifetimes as the tradition tells it that although he seemed to mess up in any number of ways in order to have the learnings that he needed to have he stayed with honesty that, that there was always a willingness to just see and to own what was going on for himself and in that with that there's a quality of balancing that with what is helpful to be truthful in a skillful way is to speak what is true and useful and I think this is really important because in the service of truthfulness we might feel like I need to focus on all the things that need fixing about me and actually that's not true and useful much of the time we might see clearly places of our limitation but sometimes what's useful is not the focusing on that when we feel some degree of inflation when we're sort of imagining how grand and wonderful we are, that's a good moment to remember the ways in which we fall flat on our face and just go, oh yeah, okay. Because it brings balance. It allows us perhaps to puncture the inflation that sometimes arises for us. But in fact, if the tendency is to pick up and to focus on where we might be lacking, deficient or limited in our development, then actually what's useful in terms of the truth is to be able to turn to, to reflect on, to remember what is wholesome, what is good, what our, what our good qualities are. And sometimes this is harder for us. But all the more important because of that, to be able to really honour what is wholesome in ourselves, what is beautiful, is often the wholesome expression of truthfulness, of what is true and helpful.
So the remaining qualities of equanimity, resolve, wisdom, loving-kindness, I might return to. Together these qualities, these qualities, these qualities that can be developed, that can be perfected, are the basis of transforming the human heart into something which can serve to the greatest degree possible the welfare of all beings. And it's this to which our practice is really directed, to which it most powerfully can be oriented. That the garden we are growing, the heart we are cultivating, is for the service, for the, we could say the feeding, for the nourishment, for the welfare of all beings. Coming back to this on a regular basis, remembering this as an offering of your practice, something incredibly powerful can be really supportive at the end of the day, at the end of a sitting, just taking a moment to honour the wholesome, the beautiful, the goodness of what you're engaged in, of what is being born out of that, and to have a sense of sharing it for the welfare of all. To understand that we are ultimately and fundamentally not separate from each other, from this life. And that what makes sense in that context is to live it for the welfare of all beings, to practice for the welfare of all beings. So let's sit for a few minutes quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.